Well, this weekend we wrap up our blessing number 10 series and we're going to do something a little different. I've asked some of our worship leaders to share some teaching on worship. And so we'll have some teaching and some worship and teaching and worship. And let me say this, we are blessed with incredibly talented worship leaders who have humble spirits. So grateful for all of our worship teams at each of our campuses. Here's my prayer, that God would take us to the next level in our personal worship lives. You know, I heard a study once that once you sing a song 30 times, you no longer think about the lyrics. And that's dangerous because then you're just worshiping God out of memory instead of doing what the psalmist said, sing a new song to the Lord. I think singing is what we do with our voice, worship is what we do with our hearts. And so it's not about perfect pitch. Uh, It's not about singing as much as our heart being inclined towards the Lord. And so I hope and pray that this weekend uh, you'll be challenged in the way that you worship and maybe even to give God the sacrifice of praise. One last little exhortation. It's a saying around here at NCC. Don't let what's wrong with you keep you from worshiping what's right with God. And so Pastor Curtis Parks, our worship director, is going to kick things off. In 1988, German record producer Frank Farian discovered a couple of young aspiring models, Rob Pilatus and Fabrice Morvan. He got them into the recording studio and created a dance pop album that would take the music world by storm. Armed with incredible dance moves, stunning drum beats, and the original Blue Steel, Millie Vanilli would soon become a household name. They gave us such chart-topping 80s classics like Blame It on the Rain and Girl You Know It's True. The dynamic duo went on to sell nearly 30 million singles, sold out world tours, and even took home the Grammy for Best New Artist in 1990. But all that fame and success was short-lived when on a live concert on MTV in front of millions of fans, it was revealed that the group had been lip-syncing the entire time. Their backing track being played from backstage got caught on a loop. Girl, you know, girl, you know, girl, girl. Robin Fab raced off the stage, and over the next couple of months and couple of years, They lost all of their fans, they lost their record deal, and became the first group ever to be stripped of a Grammy. They were exposed. Now, Rob and Fab tried to do it on their own. They tried to do it the right way. They went back into the studio using their own name, their own songs, and their own voices. But just imagine Zoolander meets Bad Karaoke. Their new record sold only 2,000 copies, and they soon faded into musical oblivion. The secret was out, and the world doesn't like fake. In 2014, a Conan Wolf study revealed that the number one thing consumers look for in a brand they support isn't innovation or a low price point, it's authenticity. Here's the key, God's interested in the same thing. Authentic is defined as something that's true and genuine and real. In John 4.23, Jesus says, yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for those are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God's after authentic worship, and he deserves nothing less. So then the question becomes, how do we live out a life of authentic worship? 
Well, I think the answer lies in the Hebrew word for worship, avodah. It translates into our daily living. It's the same definition that Paul used when he wrote the letter to the Romans. Chapter 12, verse 1, Paul writes, Therefore, brothers, I urge you, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, for this is your spiritual act of worship. You see, it's the six days and 21 hours outside of a church service that make worship authentic. Our songs are not the end-all, be-all to worship, but merely the physical expression of our heart's position. At the top of every year, NCC Worship gets together and we come up with a theme. Our theme for 2016 is authenticity, and it's inspired by Luke 8, 17, where Jesus says, For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything done in secret that will not be brought to light. I think what Jesus is saying is this. You can't live a double life. Who you are when no one's watching will always spill out into who you are in the public eye. And just like Millie Vanilli, the true you will always be exposed. I used to read this verse in Luke 8 specifically through the lens of sin. And I realized if I'm not walking with God in my private life, if I'm cussing in my car and getting short and angry with my kids, uh, then that's going to spill out into my workplace and into my other relationships that are more out in public. Um, And that's true, but it's also true about the way we worship. You see, if I'm singing songs to God throughout the week, if I'm reading my Bible every day, if I'm loving my family and serving my neighbors, then that will spill out when I'm surrounded by the church and I'm out in public. The cool thing about that is when we gather corporately as the body of Christ, we each come in with a unique song of praise on our lips, inspired by God's faithfulness of the past week. And then our songs can become a springboard into the next week. And it actually propels our faith into what God has yet to do. I like to think of our weekend worship gatherings the way I think about date night. And all you parents know how precious those can be. It's when our private love goes out on public display. It's PDA, but in a good way. (laughs) My prayer for our weekend worship experiences is this, that they would merely be an authentic expression from the overflow of our everyday lives. So let's stand across all of our campuses as we worship God with our song. I had already been home for a couple hours and I just finished watching a movie when um, my wife got back from work. So we started just to sort of talk about our days and I could tell that she probably had a hard day. So I just began to ask her about it, um, ask her questions and uh, listen very intently. Or at least try to, but uh, truthfully, I kind of had one ear in and and one ear out. Um, I I was asking the right questions to, to get the conversation going and sort of had the look of listening on my face. But uh, in my brain, I'm like practically writing an IMBD review for this movie I just saw. Like, I'm just not really there. And um, suddenly I get caught. My, my wife <laughs> says to me, um, hey, did you, did you hear what I just said? And I kind of, you know, yeah, I, I heard, yeah, nodding along. She said, because I, I feel like you're not really uh, listening to me right now. And I said, no, no, I'm, I'm here with you. I'm sitting right next to you. I'm, I'm with you. She says, well, I, I know you're here with me, but... I really need you to be present. It's funny, isn't it, that we can be kind of physically in a room, but as far as the things that play into the relationship, the the emotions and just mentally, 
we can be absent. Somebody recently asked me what my theology of worship is. And I think my theology of worship sort of starts with this, in that worship begins with response to God and it, responding to God's revelation of who he is. And it moves into an intimate place. My favorite verse to talk about worship from is Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5, 18 says, uh, Be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And 21 says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ and goes on to talk about a marriage relationship. Wives, submit to your own husbands and then husbands, serve your wives as Christ loved and gave up his life for the church. And then towards the end of the chapter, uh, verse 31, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. The two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. It's interesting to me that Paul begins his sort of monologue about marriage with a conversation or a few words about worship. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Uh, there's many linguistic biblical scholars that think that um, the word hymns here, uh, which is the Greek hymnos, actually comes from a specific word used in a specific context. And that specific word hymnos was used in the context of a Greek wedding ceremony. So the idea was that the day of a wedding, all these folks would be running around and singing these hymnos, and the idea is that the god Hymen would hear the songs, come down and bless the wedding ceremony, and it was a way to bless and just kind of ensure the intimacy between um, the man and the woman becoming married. So what Paul is doing is he's taking this cultural metaphor, this cultural language, and he's giving it a new context. He's talking about hymnos maybe as a way that as we sing songs that we usually use to talk about intimacy between one another, that now we can use those same tools, that same song, to become intimate and more closer in our relationship with Christ. All relationships begin with this idea of response. You know, as we ask questions or are asked questions, we respond to them and we get to know each other a little better. Uh, if you meet someone for the first time, you might ask questions like, where are you from? Or what do you do for a living? Uh, the first time I met my wife, it was something more like, um, what are you doing this weekend? Or um, can I have your number? Or uh, what's your last name? Can I change it? Worship also begins at a place of response. It's as we understand God's revelation in our lives more and more, we can't help but respond with passionate praise and humble worship because we know that our God is seated on the throne, victorious over sin, pain, and death. But like any relationship, our relationship to God and worship can't stay at a place of just response, but has to move into a place of intimacy. Sometimes I wonder if God sort of leans in and looks down on our worship experiences or maybe just our devotional time with him and he sees us engaging and interacting, um, but he would say to us, I see you there, and I see you're present, but are you really present? Are you really with me? What does it mean to really be engaging and with God in times of worship? I think it means transforming songs as just lyrics we sing 
and turning it into the heart song, turning it into the thing that our emotions and our, our sort of minds really engage with. And don't just say the words passively, but say them like you mean them and begin to prophesy them into areas of your life where you wanna see those things come to pass. Worship begins with response and moves into a place of intimacy, an intimate place where we can sit at the feet of Jesus and worship him for who he is. This is true in authentic worship. Acceptance, belonging, significance is what we crave and now available at our fingertips. In 140 characters or less, or that one great Instagram shot or that perfect Snapchat story, or maybe it's that built out LinkedIn profile. And for some, yeah, still some, MySpace. You see, social media has granted us the power to tell the story in whatever way we wanna tell it. You know, that perfect selfie, or those pictures that we post where we show all the great times that we have with our friends and family, or maybe it's even that drop mic quote that you post every morning where, as you sit back and wait for the applause from people to say, mm, yeah, that was good. You know, the real world, the real world where everybody's having babies and everybody's getting married and everybody is, is going on these beautiful vacations. That's the real world, right? Or is it really? A few weeks ago, I was confronted with the question, how much of what people see on your platforms and your personal interactions is the real you? This question led me to think, how often do we only show the best parts of us and keep those silent frustrations, insecurities, and bad days hidden away from the public eye at risk of simply being called human? We have taken on the hero complex, which closes our hearts to vulnerability and closes us off from those that really want to get to know us. What's worse? is that some of us have even learned to be this way towards God. I have not had the perfect life. My life has been filled with many mistakes, failures, and fears. I mean, heck, I didn't even want to do this. But it's taken me a long time to reach this point, to feel the freedom and vulnerability of what I'm about to say. One defining moment in my youth changed my life forever. I was sexually abused. It left me scarred and questioning myself as a man. In order to protect myself from the pain, I built walls around my heart. I became a pro at keeping people at a distance and I learned how to perform well, making sure that everybody knew that I was okay. I told an edited, cropped it, filtered version of, of my story and even masked my true feelings towards from God. But doubt, rejection, and pain cannot be hidden from him. It was through counseling here at NCC, I found that I needed to open up, I needed to share my real story. I needed to be real and honest with myself, with God, and lean into community. That's where I found freedom. Are there areas where you find yourself hiding, trying to protect yourself? Are you really telling your real story? At the beginning of the year, we were asked what our life verse was. I didn't know what to think. I didn't know what to say. But through some prayer and seeking, I found John 10, 10. It says, the thief cometh to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that you might have life and life more abundantly. See, God does, God's abundant life doesn't include me cowering into the corner trying to protect myself. That's how the enemy deceives us to try to keep us uh, living a defeated life 
wrapped in loneliness and performance and shame, trying to fill the voids that only God's love can fill. Abundant life happens with a vulnerable heart. It's in him that we live, we move and have our being and only God can satisfy us. But we have to open ourselves up and be willing to be broken. In Psalms 51, 17, it says that God is looking for those that have a broken and contrite heart. In being broken, you will find his grace is sufficient for your weakness. He has joy that will replace every sorrow and give you peace that you can't comprehend. You see, he wants you just as you are. Hashtag no filter. It's through vulnerability that we become true worshipers, true worshipers, surrendering every part of us and casting all of our cares on him for he cares for us, completely trusting him with a posture of open hands, holding nothing, but being ready to receive a love that overcomes every fear. We find that God, who is writing our best story, wants an intimate relationship with us and wants us to have an abundant life. If you've spent any time in or around the church, you've probably heard a few of these kitschy worship phrases. Chances are you've probably heard them from me. Phrases like, we were created to worship, or worship is a lifestyle, or um, everyone worships something. The question is, what are you worshiping? While I think there's some great truth in these statements, I'll be honest, when you slap them like the sticker on the bumper of real life, they can feel and fall utterly flat. How do you worship God when you don't feel like worshiping? What offering are you supposed to give at the end of a long work week? What are you supposed to bring when your kid throws a temper tantrum right before church? When you're feeling uncomfortable because the church AC is broken? When you found out you didn't get that job you've been waiting months for? When a loved one gets diagnosed with cancer? How do you worship God when you don't feel like worshiping God? In 1 Kings chapter 17, we read an exchange between the prophet Elijah and a starving widow. Starting in verse 10, it says this, Elijah asked her, would you please bring me a little water in a cup? As she was going to get it, he called to her, bring me a bite of bread too. But she says, I swear by the Lord your God that I don't have, I do not have a single piece of bread in the house. I only have a handful of flour left in the jar and a little cooking oil in the bottom of the jug. I was just gathering a few sticks to cook this last meal, and then my son and I will die. But Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go and do just what you've said, but make a little bread for me first. Then use what's left to prepare a meal for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, there will always be flour and olive oil in your containers until the time when the Lord sends rain and the crops grow again. So she did as Elijah said, and there was always enough flour and olive oil left in the containers, just as the Lord has promised through Elijah. What a beautiful picture of worship. This woman has come to the end of herself. She's completely broke, and yet God sends Elijah to her. Her obedience is not only the source of the provision for the man of God, but also the catalyst for the miracle in her own life. Now, there probably aren't many of us who have actually been in this starving widow's shoes, but I think we can draw a few lessons from the way she illustrates how to worship God when we're at the end of our rope. First, give God what you have. This widow 
literally had nothing to spare, and yet the little that she did have, she gave. Somewhere I think we've gotten into our heads that we're supposed to leave our junk at the door when we come into church. We're supposed to leave our real life out of sight and out of mind to come in and worship Jesus, but I do not think that could be farther from the truth. When we don't feel like worshiping God because of the mess in our life, and yet we choose to give God that very mess in an act of worship, I think we honor God. And the beautiful part is when we give that mess in worship, God doesn't just leave us with it. Like the woman in our story, she gives out of her poverty and enacts the supernatural provision of God. Likewise, when we give God our anxiety in worship, we receive his peace. When we lay our burden down at the altar, we receive his freedom. And when we give our sin to Jesus at the foot of the cross, we receive his righteousness. I can't help but think of all the people who have left their mess at the door, walked into church only to pick that mess right back up again when they walk out, or other people who will bring their mess into church but let it keep them from worshiping the God who can free them. Jesus wants you as worship, and he doesn't just want the best parts of you. He wants all of you. Give what you have. Secondly, let your hands lead your heart. I think we often view authentic worship as an outward expression of an inward feeling. I mean, it's really easy to let your heart lead your hands when life is good. When life is good, you'll jump and you'll sing and you'll serve and you'll lift your hands in worship. And honestly, we should, because if we don't turn the blessings of God into praise, it ultimately leads to pride. However, the widow's circumstances were not one that would have led to a mindset of abundance. She was starving and scrounging for the little bit that could get her by. If she had let how she felt dictate how she worshiped, she would have completely missed the miracle. I found in my own life that when I do not feel like worshiping God is when I need to take on a posture of worship most. It's when life isn't perfect that I need to lift my hands and declare God's faithfulness. It's when I'm feeling hard-hearted that I need to get on my knees at the altar. It's when I'm feeling overlooked and undervalued at work that I need to take on a posture of servanthood and worship God at Second Saturday Serve. When I let my hands lead, I've discovered that my heart doesn't follow too far behind. Worship is an offering that we choose to give, and choosing to worship God when we don't feel like it might actually be the most authentic form of worship we can give. Isaiah 29, 13, the Lord says, These people come nearer to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules they have been taught. Hundreds of years later, Jesus quotes this same passage to the Pharisees. You know, the Pharisees were some of the most pious people. They uh, technically were doing all the right things. However, Jesus was calling them out for not being authentic, essentially telling them that, uh, that they didn't really know who God was. And how often do we as, as believers sing or say the right words or serve our communities to do what looks good in front of others, but don't actually live what it is that, live out what it is that we're singing or saying? You know, we're following the rules, but maybe our hearts aren't in the right place. I believe that a big part of what it means to worship God is to know Him. You know, if we want to worship God rightly, we need to have a right understanding of who He is. So how do we develop 
that right understanding of God that leads us to this right place of worship. A.W. Tozer said, what comes to mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. So the way you think about God is what most defines you. About a year ago, um, my grandma got diagnosed with cancer and uh, the news of that just left my emotions reeling. You know, it was two years after my own diagnosis, she received hers. And uh, she was a pillar of our family. She, uh, if you spent any amount of time with her, you just knew that she knew God in such a special way. You know, she's our prayer warrior. She prayed Psalm 91 over herself, over our family every single day. Um, she was there for me in a, in a really big way during my own battle with cancer. You know, ever encouraging, always praying. She, she and my grandpa often drove me to and from can, uh, chemo treatments, um, just sitting there with me, even as I slept, just to be there. So receiving that news was devastating. It was honestly a lot easier to fight that fight myself than to watch her fight that fight. And last November, just four months after her diagnosis, um, we lost her. And after that, I did the only thing that I knew how. I did what she taught me to do, what she exemplified so well. I worshiped and I leaned into the character of God. And I'm amazed that when I feel like I begin to know who God is, he reveals new dimensions of his character. And throughout this process, I experienced his character in a few new ways. First of which was his love. You know, over and over again in the Psalms, it, it talks about the steadfast love of God. You know, steadfast meaning resolute or unwavering. Again, in, in 1 Corinthians 13, it paints this beautiful picture of the love of God. You know, this love is far beyond our ability to understand or comprehend. It's never-ending, far-reaching. It's, it's a love that pursues us. It never gives up. Secondly, it was joy. You know, my grandma faced many other difficulties um, before cancer, medical and non-medical alike, and she always responded in joy. You know, she was always filled with laughter, and she poked fun at my grandpa. You know, he often called her Henri. <laughs> she still went on adventures. She still rejoiced and celebrated with others. Even in her last days, many of us flew, or in her last days, many of us flew home to, to say goodbye. And my sister Lydia was seven months pregnant at the time with my very adorable nephew. If you ever want to see pictures and photos, I'm readily available. Just find me anytime. <laughs> um, and the way that my grandma responded to feeling her first great-grandson kick for the first time. I just thought, oh, that is just so her. Like even in her suffering, this in no way hinders her ability to rejoice this new little, rejoice with my sister about this new, new little life inside of her. Even in her last moments, she still desired for us to be filled with joy. Third was goodness. Can I just say that when you encounter difficult circumstances, leaning in and believing in the goodness of God is a very difficult thing to do. However, regardless of our circumstance, the goodness of God never wavers. You know, I found that, especially in those difficult moments, we're able to experience and see new dimensions of His goodness. And it's out of the, that goodness that, you know, that comes everything that we need, we need to sustain us. You know, like grace and strength, love, salvation, blessing, favor, joy. 
we're able to truly experience that passage in Romans that talks about all things working together for the good of those who love God. Even when we can't see it in the present, Jesus is still orchestrating his plans and purposes to bring himself glory. So when we know who he is, it takes our worship from focusing on our circumstances and it flips it onto focusing on God's character. That way, regardless of where we're at, we're able to worship him rightly. Because a right understanding of God leads to a right posture in worship. It leads to a right perspective in worship. It leads, or it causes us to focus on his character and not on our circumstances. Knowing God's character leads to authentic worship. In his book, Radical, author and pastor David Platt describes a conversation he had with religious community leaders on a recent trip to Indonesia. Now these leaders were from different faith backgrounds and they were having this conversation about how they thought that every religion was fundamentally the same with just minor differences that separated them. Now after the conversation, they asked David what he thought about it. And David said, well, it seems like you view life as this mountain and God or whatever you call God is at the top of that mountain and all of humanity is at the bottom of that mountain. Now you might take one route, I may take another way, but in the end, we all wind up in the same place. The leader smiled and responded, you understand well. David said, well, what if I told you that the God at the top of the mountain actually came down to meet us where we're at? The leaders paused and then replied, that would be great. David leaned in a little closer and said, let me introduce you to Jesus. You see, worship is the place where God's people and his presence connect. And it can happen in any part of our lives, from Sunday morning to Saturday night. God wants it all. I think of our weekend gatherings when we come together as the church. I think of that as the exclamation point on our lives of worship. Now, I grew up thinking that when you come to church, you need to leave all of your baggage at the door. But as Chris said earlier, God wants us to bring it all to him. He wants us to exchange our mess for his beauty. Jesus always meets us where we're at. In Matthew 11, verse 28, Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary, and find rest. Worship is the place where you can be real with God. It's where all of our masks are stripped away. It's where our hearts are exposed. Worship is where spirit and surrender collide. In worship, the weary are made new. So I just encourage all of us, let's come to Jesus with everything that we are the good, the bad, and the ugly, and we'll find renewal and rest. Give him your heart, and he'll give you his life. So let's all stand across our campuses as we worship God once more with our song.